0: Good morning, it's Monday the 15th of January and this is Govintar Athiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day. The stock markets make peace with IT stocks, elsewhere Microsoft overtakes Apple. Are the government's efforts to rein in inflation working? Mapping India's oil prospects onshore and offshore. How Bangladesh footwear exports are growing rapidly as it exploits synergy with garment-making. NRIs are buying more than 20% of new real estate projects, driving up prices on the premium end. And Canada may cap international student arrivals.
1: This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj.
0: The street makes peace with IT companies. The Lull Street wanted more from IT companies, but then was happy that they delivered better results than what you might call a worst-case situation. And that was enough to spark a frenzied buying a day after Infosys and TCS unveiled their Q3 results. And the market as a whole was up on Friday, with the BSE Sensex hitting a fresh lifetime high of 72,721 and finally ending up 847 points at 72,568. The Nifty 50 also hit a new high of 21,928 before closing up 247 points at 21,895. The rupee shot up 11 paise against the US dollar on Friday thanks to foreign portfolio investor inflows into both debt and equity markets. And we usually see a correlation between the rupee strengthening and increased FPI or foreign portfolio investor inflows. This was the eighth consecutive trading session, the rupee strengthened on Friday, touching an intraday high of 82 rupees 86 paise per dollar before settling at 82 rupees 92 paise compared to 83 rupees 3 paise on Thursday. Now those variations might sound small, but a jump in the other direction, which is the rupee getting stronger, is a little or a relatively unusual in recent times. Though, going by past experience, the rupee could get a little bit stronger, assuming flows are strong but will most likely return to around 83 rupees, levels or a little below. And this is, of course, going by past. Meanwhile, the United States saw consumer price inflation numbers come in, and we'll come to India numbers and some insights shortly. And the figure there was higher than expected, triggering speculation that an interest rate cut, which was expected to happen by March, could get pushed a little bit. But on the other hand, we are seeing speculation quite frequently now, on when that interest rate cut might happen because the commitment to do so has already come in. U.S. inflation came in at 3.4%, which was higher than expected, as we pointed out earlier. Speaking of the U.S., Microsoft ended Friday's U.S. trading session as the most valuable publicly traded company, surpassing Apple after briefly topping the iPhone maker during intraday trade Thursday, according to CNBC. Microsoft's market capitalization stood at $2.89 trillion, while Apple's stock dropped about 3% and lowering its valuation to $2.87 trillion. CNBC quoted Redburn Atlantic equities analyst James Cordwell saying that he was downgrading Apple to neutral from buy on Wednesday, citing little room for upside over the next few years in iPhone growth and an anticipated underwhelming. March quarter. So the Microsoft stock is up about 65% in the last 12 months, while Apple has gone up about 40%. India's inflation rises fastest in four months. India's annual retail inflation rose at the fastest pace in four months in December, thanks primarily to a rise in food prices. Annual retail inflation rose to about 5.7% in December from 5.5% the previous month, above the central bank's target of 4%, according to data released by India's Ministry of Statistics on Friday. A Reuters poll of 56 economists had forecast a rate of 5.8%, so the final number was below expectations of at least these economists. Now, food inflation, which accounts for nearly half the overall consumer price basket, was about 9.5% in December, up from 8.7% in November as prices of vegetables, pulses and spices rose. Now, this is despite the government quite proactively trying to keep prices down through various interventions, including, of course, stopping exports of products like non-basmati rice, wheat, onion and sugar. So now this is the part which is a little worrying. Vegetable prices have seen a 28% hike, and this is worrying because it does reflect in some ways a systemic inability or failure to tackle it. Also because the problems are structural and long-term, like the lack of logistics and cold chain systems. I reached out to Aditi Nair, an economist at rating agency ICRA, and I began by asking her how she was looking at the overall trajectory of inflation going back the last four or six months. And also, which of the government's moves to rein in inflation was working?
1: So, it's very interesting. Actually, the inflation for December did come in higher than November, which was expected. But it was well below our forecast. So, we had feared that inflation would rise to as much as 5.9%. So, compared to that, I would still say that the numbers are a relief. And both on food and on miscellaneous, uh, the print is below what we had penciled in. So, I would say that's good news both for the core as well as For the non-core, for the current month, we're looking at a significant cooling of the headline inflation number to about five point two percent. Now, of course, that's a large distance, a long distance away from the four percent that the RBI is targeting. But uh, getting down from five point seven percent to five point two percent in one month is at least something that's a lot of optical relief.
0: Right. So vegetables seems to be high, and so does pulses. So that's vegetables is still around twenty eight percent and pulses at about 21%. Now, these are things that obviously we're all consuming on a daily basis. So, does this also suggest or mean that some of the efforts to rein in inflation are not working? Or would it have been worse if those efforts were not there?
1: Yeah, I think the latter is probably correct. The interesting thing with vegetables is that while we see spikes quite often, vegetables kind of mean correct. And once the immediate problem is over, we come back to whatever is a seasonal normal for vegetable prices. So we would still expect that in a couple of months, we're going to go back down to like, you know, by February or March, we're going to be at relatively normal levels for those months. The problem with pulses and cereals is that once prices go up, there is a stickiness which really is very difficult to unwind. And there the larger trends in terms of uh, the kharif uh, output not being good, monsoon and pon- post-monsoon not being good, reservoir levels significantly below the historical average, particularly in the south, and lagging rubby sowing, all of these are much bigger concerns in terms of the outlook for food grain inflation. And ultimately, next year's monsoon is going to be quite important in determining the inflation trajectory. So every year, the monsoon is important for our food inflation trajectory. But coming on the back of this monsoon that was so bad in 2023, I think 2024, we're really going to be watching out for a well-distributed monsoon, and that's one of the reasons that we don't think that rate cuts are going to come very quickly because the Reserve Bank and the Monetary Policy Committee will want a lot of assurance that inflation is going to moderate more sustainably before they go in for a rate cut cycle.
0: Right, and before I come to your, you know, what you're projecting, so we saw U.S. inflation numbers re- released as well, which is also high. Uh, Is there any correlation either at this point or earlier that we should be generally aware of or worth noting?
1: See, the US CPI basket is very different. The drivers are very different. I mean, in fact, one of the bigger drivers of inflation in a lot of developed markets is crude. And crude doesn't enter our CPI basket directly. And the main fuels are, you know, the pricing is not that. Uh, The transmission of crude price changes to our retail selling prices is really not been there for the last uh, several months. So in that sense, we are shielded from the kind of uh, volatility that you see in developed uh, markets in terms of the very quick transmission of crude oil price changes into fuel price changes. So that itself completely changes the dynamics of their CPI versus ours.
0: Right. And how are you looking ahead, Aditi, for the next couple of months? And we're obviously in an election season. So obviously, the government is also watching prices, particularly of food, because that's something that most citizens or voters would be concerned with?
1: So, December was likely a peak. Quite certain that inflation is going to trend down over the next three months, kind of plateau a little bit. And then we have a surprisingly benign base effect for Q3. So, overall, you know, hopefully we will not get into this range of 55 to 6% again for a while. Averages, we are now looking at 5.3% for FI24. And if the monsoon is reasonably well distributed, uh, we're hopeful that inflation can moderate to 4.7% in FI25, but it's really early days and inflation outcomes can vary quite significantly from baseline projections.
0: Last question, Aditi, so when you take these numbers as projections, so would that mean that you're still factoring in relatively higher numbers for Vegetables, pulses and spices and so on. Because that's really what, I guess, a common man or person is looking out for.
1: Spices, pulses and cereals, yes. Uh, in the near term, we are looking at uh, prices being sticky and not coming, or uh, correcting very quickly. Uh, vegetables will mean reward. So they will go back to their normal seasonal level within a few months.
0: Right. And would something else go up then? I mean, because you're not...
1: Well, food price shocks, I mean, as we're all aware, food price shocks in India occur almost annually. So I'm fairly certain something may go wrong over the course of the year. I really can't tell you today what it will be. But yeah, I mean, we are expecting the food inflation to moderate, but still remain above 5% in uh, FI25. Because once the higher pulses and cereal prices set in, then they remain in the base for a long time.
0: Right. Aditi, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. India is on the hunt for oil. And now the energy segment supported by India Energy Week. So globally, nervousness is back in the oil markets with tensions in the Red Sea increasing over the weekend. Brent oil rose to cross $80 a barrel after the United States and its allies launched airstrikes against Houthi rebels in Yemen in retaliation for attacks on ships in the Red Sea before coming back to, that's oil coming back to about $78 a barrel right now. If you look back, the original fear as far as oil prices go was not the Israel-Hamas war which started with a terror attack on October 7th, but whether this would draw in other countries in the region. At that time, and as a matter of fact until quite recently, the feeling was that the war would not affect crude oil flows or production, and rightly so. Now that has changed in a manner that was not quite anticipated because what we are seeing now is attacks on cargo ships, including those carrying crude in the Red Sea en route To and from the Suez Canal. Bloomberg said that Brent is now testing its 50-day moving average for the first time since October, and if prices breach that level, it could spur additional buying by algorithms and technical traders, which obviously means prices could rise. Now, all of this brings us to India's own efforts here. So, as a backdrop, India is the world's third largest oil importer and consumer. More specifically, in the last year, some 40% of India's imports came from Russia alone, more so after Western nations stopped buying from Moscow following its invasion of Ukraine. Be that as it may, India is not self-sufficient in crude oil, with some 85% of our crude oil requirement being imported, whether from Russia or the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries like Saudi Arabia. Now, various Indian state-owned companies and private sector ones like Reliance have been exploring and drilling for oil across the country. But if you've not been following this space, you might be surprised to note the fairly aggressive efforts to find and drill for oil both onshore and offshore, and in many cases extract more from wells that are decades old. Now, this is, of course, despite our crude oil production being relatively low. I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Ranjit Rath, Chairman and Managing Director of Oil India Limited, India's oldest and more than a century old oil company and the smallest amongst what are known as the oil public sector units of India, including Indian Oil, ONGC, BPCL and HPCL. Oil India brings with it a unique location originally in the northeast of India where oil was found in Digboy and of course Heritage. I asked Mr. Rath, geologist by training, where he was seeing prospects of oil across the country at this point. Right. And here's a question to perhaps the geologist in you. So if you were to look at the map of India today, as you said, many of those wells are producing oil for more than a century and perhaps will continue to produce for a long time. There are many wells, particularly offshore and some onshore, I'm guessing, which are yet to produce, but which may have potential to do so. What does it look to you today as you look uh, maybe a decade or two, where India will continue to produce from and perhaps find new wells if that could be found?
2: First of all, thank you very much for uh, posing this question and with the connotation the geologist in you, I'm very thrilled because the possibilities India offers today in terms of ENP is unbelievable huge potential is yet to be explored. That's what I strongly believe for two reasons. One is uh, a bit of technical connotations that today we have about 26 sedimentary basins, which is very nicely categorized into three categories. Category 1, 2, one, 3. And it has got the commercial implication. That's why I'm giving this narrative. There are seven basins, which are category 1 basins. And there we have proven hydrocarbon reserves which is being produced. And out of the seven, we are producing from Assam self. We have our interest in the Tripura Basin. We have our interest in assam Arakan fold belt. Plus, we have also our interest in the Jaisalmer Basin. In terms of Category 2 and Category 3 Basin, the pathbreaking reforms which Government of India has brought in that if you instead of the pre-help uh, regime where uh, production sharing contract was the order of the day, through HELP during 2016-2017, government brought in a government of India brought in a reform where the ENP companies could offer their bids or offer their proposals or evince interest in large parcels of land tract or offshore areas which is that's why it's called open acres licensing policy and another thing that was brought in is the revenue sharing contract by virtue of which if you were intending to do exploration in category 2 and category 3 basins the revenue commitment is nil and that speaks volume in terms of the opportunity that has been created plus in recent times government of india has unlocked about 1 million square kilometer of explorable area in both offshore of East Coast, offshore of West Coast and the andaman Nicobar Basin, which has made us available the deep and ultra-deep water areas which has not been explored yet. To supplement this, government is now carrying out through Ministry of Petroleum and Natural Gas and Directorate General of Hydrocarbon the National Seismic Programme, where extensive data is being acquired in these areas and where Oil India was also mandated to do it. And as we speak in difficult terrains like the northeastern part of the country, the upper reach of Himalaya, the Buster, that is Central India Basin, it, Oil India is also carrying out airborne gravity gradiometry. The intent is to create a database which will entice the explorers like the National Oil Companies, both ONGC and Oil India, and also the IOCs or the NOCs of the globe. So to me, the opportunity is actually there. And with the now the ecosystem that has been created, we look forward to the future rounds of uh, OLP 9 and OLP 10 to go
1: forward.
0: You can catch that full interview in the Core Report special series, The Energy Special, on the link below. This segment was supported by India Energy Week. Log on to www.IndiaEnergyWeek.com for more details. Bangladesh rises in footwear exports too. Now much has been written about Bangladesh overtaking India in garment exports. While the same thing may not happen right away in footwear as well, Bangladesh is growing fast, which is worth noting in itself. An insightful article in the Economic Times points out that Bangladesh's footwear exports have risen from $1 billion to $1.7 billion between 2020 and 2022, which is just two years, while India's exports grew more slowly from $2.8 billion to about $3 billion. On the other hand, while the global footwear trade expanded by 5%, India's exports contracted in the last three years. So the reasons, as reported by the Economic Times, include India's bias towards leather and handcrafted footwear as opposed to non-leather or machine-made footwear. So far, so good. India's exports of non-leather is only 19%, while the global share is 70%, with both China and Vietnam exports being in that ballpark, according to an analysis from Global Trade Research Initiative. Also, India is a larger market within, which is the domestic market, with a roughly $26 billion market size. India is also the second largest producer of footwear, contributing about 13% of worldwide production, and only a 2.2% in global exports. But Indians spend less on footwear, an average of $18 per person compared to about $128 in China, $303 in the United States and $333 in Japan. So, coming back to exports, India could make more non-leather shoes, but if it only produced the inputs here as well. Apparently, India imports most inputs and materials to make non-leather shoes, the market size for which, as I just pointed out, is much larger. Non-leather shoes dominate India's imports, constituting 77% of the roughly $900 million footwear import value. Incidentally, non-leather means shoes like sneakers, sports shoes and so on, which are obviously growing well. So the Bangladesh example is interesting because the economy is capitalizing on transferable skills between garment manufacturing and non-leather shoes, and also in some ways appearing to gear itself for a situation where garment exports may either come down or, in general, be diversified. Bangladesh also enjoys beneficial tariffs, for example, lower import duties when it exports to the EU in areas like garments and shoes, but is evidently making good use of them before they expire. So one of the insights on the Apple manufacturing ecosystem, which is growing in India now, is not that we are making Apple phones or other Apple devices, which we are, but how we are developing capabilities that can help make several gadgets in the electronics ecosystem and more importantly, the materials that go into it. For example, a lens that might be there on a phone or even a laptop or even the top of your television set. And all of this is why businesses, industries, and the skills that drive them need to grow as soon as they hit the ground and start expanding immediately. NRIs are boosting India's real estate market. Non-resident Indians or are back in Indian real estate, buying aggressively some 20% of most major property launches, keeping prices high and particularly on the higher end or premium properties costing more than a crore of rupees each. Niranjan Hiranandani, Managing Director of Mumbai-based developer Hiranandani Group, told Bloomberg that this was the first time in 45 years he was seeing luxury and mid-level housing grow faster than affordable housing. He added that the demand from overseas-based Indians had shown crazy growth and that he'd never seen such numbers in his life. Some 25% of over a 1,000 luxury residences sold by DLF in Gurgaon, near Delhi, in just three days, a couple of weeks ago, even before starting construction, were bought by NRIs. Indians living overseas purchased 20% of all homes sold by the Hiranandani Group in their last two launches, Niranjan Hiranandani said to Bloomberg. NRIs are buying for some old and new reasons. The new ones are improving rental yields, particularly after COVID, while the old ones, of course, are a sense of connect with family in India and a favourable dollar to rupee conversion ratio, presently one US dollar buying around 83 rupees. Bloomberg quotes the example of this NRI living in the Midwestern United States state of Indiana, who has apparently bought five properties in India already, initially for his parents and then subsequently as an investment. If you look around within your own families and beyond, I'm sure you'll find more such examples as well. Speaking anecdotally, that is. Canada might cap international students. Speaking of Indians overseas, Canada is considering a cap on the number of international students allowed to live in Canada, Reuters quoted Immigration Minister Mark Miller saying, as the government faces criticism for a housing affordability crisis. The housing crisis has been blamed on an increase in migrants and international students fueling demand for homes, just as inflation has slowed construction. Official data says there were more than 800,000 foreign students with active visas in 2022, up from 275,000 in 2012. That's about 10 years before. A good part of that are obviously Indian students. Canada is a popular destination for international students since it's relatively easy to obtain a work permit, Reuters reported. That's it from me for today. Have a great day and week ahead. That was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at at feedbackatthecore.in and thank you once again for listening.